Good morning again, everybody. I'm going to have you open to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to continue our study of this gospel this morning. Uh, Pastor Rob and I have really enjoyed our study, and of course we have time alone studying the text and thinking through it, and we have conversations together in which we're sharpening each other and helping each other appreciate the amazing truth that's here. And so I'm excited to share with you this morning from John chapter 4, the end of the chapter. Brian read it earlier. It's the story known as the healing of the nobleman's son, and that's what we're going to look at. But before we do, I want to say that I've heard many times over the years, counseling people, talking with people, I've heard this expression, a parent should never outlive their child. A parent should never outlive their child. I've heard that from people who have never lost a child, but deeply fear losing a child. I've heard that from people who almost lost a child, but were spared, the child recovered. And sadly, I've heard that from people who have lost a child. Arguably nothing more difficult in life to go through than that. As a dad with three daughters, I can only imagine what that feels like. And I know there are people in this room who have lost a child. And it's brutal. And there are no words to describe what that feels like. One of the words that comes to mind when you think about such an experience is the word desperation. Desperation, and that's what we see this morning. This is the type of man we encounter in this passage in John 4, is a man who is desperate. He is on the verge of that experience, thinking he's going to lose his son. And Jesus meets him and showers him with mercy. And so we're all going to experience some of Christ's mercy this morning as we look together at this story. Read with me. We're going to begin with verses 43 through verse 45, where we get the setting, just a reminder of where Jesus is at this point. He's been with the woman at the well there in Samaria. And it says, After two days he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So he's there in Galilee. He had performed a miracle, a noteworthy miracle. We looked at in John chapter 2, turning the water into wine at that wedding feast. He had also performed many miracles throughout Jerusalem and Judea, and people were hearing about him. They either witnessing it themselves or hearing as word was passed around about this amazing man and all that he was doing, his, his truth, his wisdom. He was speaking, his, his miracles, healing people. The word was getting around. And so he returns to Galilee, and there he receives even better reception than he did in what can be considered his homeland of Jerusalem and Judea, his own people there. Well, here in Galilee, he's receiving this kind of reception, and he encounters... A certain man that we learn about beginning in verse 46. It says, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, which we mentioned a moment ago. It says, And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. I want you to think about this, this type of individual we're meeting here. It says in in my Bible, he's called a royal official. I know a lot of you use the ESV there, it's called an official. In some Bibles, he's referred to as a nobleman. 
It's really, the idea is he's, he's networked with powerful people. Possibly Herod, who was leader over that area of Galilee. Possibly all the way up to the emperor himself. He had connections. He had resources. He was what we would call a self-made man. He was probably used to people coming to him with their problems. He had means. He had a lot of resources at his disposal. But in this situation, none of that mattered, did it? None of that mattered at all. Whatever money he had, whatever connections he had, connections to military leaders, political figures, connections even to probably the best of the physicians of their day. I'm sure he had access to all these people, and none of that mattered. None of them could help him. But he had heard of Jesus. He had heard of his mercy. He had heard of his miracle-working power, and he said to himself, I've got to get to him. So he goes to Jesus, and it says in verse 47, he was imploring him. In my Bible, it uses that word imploring him, not a common English word we use today. Uh, In your Bible, if you're using the ESV, I think it says he was asking him. In reality, in the original language, it's emphatic. He was was begging him over and over again. He was pleading with him, you got to help me. I'm desperate, and I can't do anything about this, and nobody else can either, but can you just please come help me so I don't lose my son? Man is experiencing desperation. Verse 48 Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. It's an interesting statement. It almost seems insensitive in a way, but what Jesus is putting his finger on is this, this human need we have to see something impressive, something powerful, and something that connects with our real life and what we're going through in order for us to believe. And, and there he was in their midst, God in the flesh, the miracle worker, the life giver, And he says, you know, it requires this sort of thing, this sort of manifestation for people to believe. And it's, in one sense, it's a little bit of a correction because we, I mean, God's given us plenty of evidence of his existence in the created world that we live in, the complexity of our bodies and the design of our bodies, all sorts of evidences of what he's saying here. The most powerful and profound form of evidence is right in your midst. And that's what it takes. And God uses that to help people believe So this is in verse 49, the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Like enough with the conversation. I mean, come. At verse 47, at the end of that verse, it said he's at the point of death. It's literally, he's about to die. Like every second here counts. Let's go. Lord, come. Come before my child dies. We're going to look at what Jesus did in a moment, but before we do, let's just take a little more time to think about And I want to read from a book that I really like. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. But I want to think with you for a moment about how suffering, difficulties, pain, loss, these are inescapable, aren't they? Probably, though there are some young people in here, probably we've all experienced deep, deep pain as a result of loss. As I said earlier, some even the loss of a child. And that's an equalizer, isn't it? Because we all have different levels of, um, call it power or resources in our lives. I don't know that any of us in here would call ourselves noblemen. <laughs> but money, we're, we're in the wealthiest country 
at the wealthiest point in time of all of human history. So we have that going for us. And there are all varying degrees of connections you have and titles you've held and people you know and resources you have. Some in here have a lot more than others, but all of us have some. And and yet, when it comes to these, these moments in which we are introduced to our fragility, when it comes to these types of trials, these types of terrifying experiences, none of those human resources seem to matter much, do they? Like we're all leveled. All of a sudden, we all have the same just empty pockets. In this book, Timothy Keller says this. I just want you to listen. He says, The loss of loved ones, debilitating and fatal illnesses, personal betrayals, financial reversals, and moral failures, all of these will eventually come upon you if you live out a normal lifespan. No one is immune. Therefore, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. I want us to think about that for a moment and and sort of soak in that. How frail we are. Life, the Bible says, is a vapor that appears for a moment and vanishes away. We often live with the delusion of strength or self-sufficiency or independence. We don't always feel desperate, but we always are desperate, aren't we? I mean, if we're acquainted with reality... We actually always are desperate. In fact, for that feeling to come upon us, all it takes is the right phone call, text message, doctor's diagnosis, conversation. That's all it takes. And everything can change just like that, can it? And we are instantly acquainted with our mortality, with our weakness, with our lack of control. And I don't know about you, but that, that's not a feeling that I get excited about, naturally speaking. Humanly, it's, it's not something that's appealing to us to be divested, stripped of that, that sense of control or that, that sense of adequacy. And yet, it's where we actually are every moment and it's where we actually need to be because that's where most clearly and most profoundly, we encounter our God. That's how we're prepared to see Him for who He is. That's how this man was prepared, stripped of all of his false kind of artificial props that were holding his life up, a man even of dignity and admired by others, but yet just at this point leveled, stripped of all that, that he might see how much he needed Jesus. And it's really the same for us today in terms of our, our need of him. So let's think about, 
now God's mercy toward this man. Jesus shows amazing mercy to him. Beginning in verse 50, it says, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father, this is amazing, look at this, verse 53. The father knew that it was at that hour, at that very hour, the hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And so he himself believed in his whole household. Oh, someone's got a reminder on their phone of something. Hope it's not me. Don't think it's me. At that very moment, he was healed. Jesus just spoke the word. And other places in the Gospel of John, of course, all throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus up front with people, in person, healing them. Face to face. Here, he just says the word. And the man goes, believing that Christ had the power to do this. And he finds, as he talks to his servants, that in fact, his son was healed. Made fully well. In that instant, Jesus spoke the word. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And he was able to do that. The Christ who, who spoke the world into existence can heal someone and restore them that quickly. And that's what happened. And he and his whole household, they believed they were, they were blown away. They had experienced the reality of who their creator God was for them. Mercy. Mercy is God's goodness extended to us in our difficulty, in our suffering, in our anguish. That's what mercy is. And he and his family, they had tasted mercy because that son, they thought they, would, they were sure to lose, was given back to them, whole, well. Can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine the joy? They went from desperation to celebration. No doubt. I mean, can you imagine? In one minute, you think you're going to lose your son, and the next minute, he is fully healed and well. And this belief they had was not just like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, he's, he's the son of God, he's the Messiah. I mean, you, the fullness in their hearts, you, you can only imagine. Verse 54 says this again, the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I want to read one other excerpt from this book where the author talks about how that leveling, that place of difficulty and suffering prepares us to meet Jesus and to see how great he truly is. And it begs a really important question that we're going to get to in just a moment. There's a really important question it begs, but for now, just hear and appreciate what he's saying. It says, when pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see Not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Over the years, I also came to realize that adversity did not merely lead people to believe in God's existence. It pulled those who already believed into a deeper experience of God's reality, love, and grace. One of the main ways we move from abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with Him as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. 
As C.S. Lewis famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Believers understand many doctrinal truths in the mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into the heart except through disappointments, failure, and loss. As a man who seemed about to lose both his career and his family once said to me, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through, but you don't really know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And I know that resonates with you as believers in Him. In one sense, we want to do everything we can to avoid those types of experiences. To stay as far away from desperation as possible. In another sense, at a deep level, we know that's where we meet our God face to face. That's where we see our need for Jesus and the amazing glory of His having come thousands of years ago and all the accomplished and all the healing and all the love and all the grace poured out and then going to the cross and then dying and going into the grave and then rising from the dead. It's there in that suffering that we come to appreciate the reality of all that. It's not just words on a page. It's true. In John chapter 1, we read that in Him is life, and that life is the light of men. Later in John chapter 11, he encounters this family of Lazarus, and Lazarus for him is too late. He's already died, but he proclaims there, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he goes on and he speaks a word, and Lazarus rises from the dead. This is who our Savior is. So here's the question that it begs, and I like to ask these questions as I study Here's the question. Why doesn't Jesus always save dying kids? I mean, if he can do it, why doesn't he just always do it? I mean, I don't know how that question hits you. For some of you, it hits real deep. Like, yeah, he didn't save my kid in that way. Others of you, you just, you just fear it and you know it to be true. Like, like, listen, statistically, and I looked this up, In 2021, this is the most recent statistic I could find. In 2021, over 5 million children under the age of 5 perished, died globally in 2021. You know how many that is every day? 14,000, roughly 14,000 children per day died in 2021. And that's a lower number than years past. What about all of them? And that's, that's, a, that's a distant statistic. Those are just numbers. I could tell you about my, my nephew, who years ago was born premature, lived a few days, and then died. I could tell you about friends of ours in California who had a seven-year-old daughter who lived through a rare form of cancer and died. Even as the whole church back there prayed and prayed and prayed in the ongoing trial that was for that family. I can tell you about one of the hardest ministry calls I've ever gone on where I went to meet with a family whose 14-year-old daughter had taken her own life. Okay? Why? The answer is found in verse 54 in, in a little word that's easy to fly right by. It says, this again is a second sign that Jesus performed, the word sign. 
Now, you know what a sign is. A sign points beyond itself to someone or something else. All throughout the Gospel of John, we read about the signs, many signs Jesus performed, these miracles where he healed people over and over again. There were places he went, entire towns came to him, and they were healed of all their ailments, all their diseases. All these signs. Signs pointing beyond themselves to to something else, to the reality that that Jesus is, in fact, God. That He does have within Himself life-giving power. He proved it over and over and over again. And those signs were, were temporary in nature. In other words, this Son who was healed, we would love to know. I mean, it's like... It would say the end after verse 54. In our stories or movies today, that would be where they roll the credits. That's the end of the story. But we'd love to know what happened from there. How did he live his life? What was it like for his family? What did he grow up to do? How long did he live? I don't know, but I know this. He eventually died because he's not here today. And none of those family members are here today, thousands of years later. They all died. And everybody Jesus healed during his earthly ministry They all, at some point, went on to die. And we will all die, won't we? It's a guarantee. 100% of us. So now the word sign, the significance of that, is striking us. Like We need there to be something beyond. Years ago, we we took our girls to, to Disney World, and as we're approaching, you're driving along, and if you've been down there, you know this, in Orlando, there's signs everywhere for Disney World. And those signs are great, and they're expensive, and they're colorful, and they're even inviting. But if we stopped at the sign and said, all right, kids, get out, they're going to be a little disappointed. It would be a whole lot cheaper. Am I right, parents? Can I hear a hearty amen? (laughs) But that's not the point. Disney World lies beyond the signs. You've got to keep driving to get there. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He never promised a pain-free life. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will suffer. But he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. He is not confined by death. Unlike us, he is not powerless. He is powerful. Death cannot keep him. He rose on the third day to prove it. Read One last thing, this is um, the reflection of a a theologian, an author, kind of an acquaintance of mine, someone I've I've really appreciated over the years, his name's Chad Bird, And, and this is what he writes not long ago, on Saturday morning, July 16th, 2022, our son, Luke Gabriel Bird, opened his eyes to his last day in this world. He did not know that, of course, nor did we, nor did anyone else. In this life, punctuated by the unexpected, we sometimes begin our days with a yawn and end them with a sigh or a gasp or, in my case, a scream. I got the call that evening around 745 After the naval officer introduced himself and confirmed that I was the father of Luke Bird, he proceeded with the news that undid my world. Luke had been on a hike in the countryside of Chile where he was studying abroad. 
at the country's military academy, having just completed his second year as a midshipman at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. While on the hike, he and the Chilean student walked near a massive waterfall. Luke was taking pictures. He approached near the edge to take a picture, and when he did, he fell. He fell. A simple statement of fact. Two words. Six letters. A pronoun and a verb. Disarmingly mundane in appearance until the he is your 21-year-old son and the fell means that you will never again in this life hear his laughter or tell him how incredibly proud you are of him. Never will you watch him smile as he watches the love of his life walk down the aisle or cradle his firstborn in his arms. Those two words, he fell, had just as well be two swords thrust hilt deep into the soul of all those who love Luke. He goes on to talk about the impact that his son, though a young man, the profound and broad sweeping impact he had on people around him. And then he said this, what Luke accomplished in his short life, the impact he made on countless people, that aura about him, simply unmissable, All of these traits make his death a double-edged sword. I am grateful, grateful beyond words that the Lord used him in such remarkable ways and simultaneously gave him such a humble spirit that even when he won a prestigious national award, he accepted it with a servant's heart. And yet here we sit as parents, siblings, family, friends, and even total strangers who are learning about Luke for the first time asking why. Why, O oh Lord, snatch from this world a young man with the potential to become such a power, such a good leader? Why, dear God, take from us someone with so much more to give, especially in a world starving for exemplary men like him? Why? As always, no matter how many whys we cast toward heaven, they all ricochet off an iron door that refuses to yield even the smallest of answers. We will never know. And should the creator of heaven and earth, the father of Luke, tell us, chances are we still wouldn't understand. What we can understand, as Luke's family and friends, are these truths. First and most importantly, Luke understood well that this world of ours is but, quote, the porch to the father's home. Luke was a beloved child of God. As a little boy, he and I prayed the Lord's Prayer together. As he grew up, we knelt beside each other at the Lord's table to remember his life-giving body and blood. I can recall how in middle school and high school he chose to sit in adult Bible classes that I was teaching. Luke may have died on July 16, 2022, but he overcame death many years before when he trusted in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Our son is safe and at peace in the presence of him who lived, died, and rose again for Luke As I sit here in my grief, alternately weeping and reminiscing and praying and giving thanks, I ever hold before my eyes the one who will bear me through this hardship, even as he bore my son through his. That one is the Lord in whom Luke trusted and in whose presence our son is now at peace and awaiting the resurrection. The Lord who, hard as it is to fathom, loves Luke even more than any of us here in this world. The Lord Jesus who stepped out of his grave on the day of his resurrection with his foot on the throat of death itself. Jesus is the champion of life. And in his life, 
Luke, our beloved son, now truly lives. That is hope. It's the only hope we got, right? It's the only hope we got. And we have this testimony of God's word upholding for us God's son and declaring to us this amazing reality that long before God ever said to Adam and Eve, you will surely die, he planned to say to us through Christ, because I live, you will live also. Let us pray. Father, as we sit here acquainted in a fresh way with our mortality, with our weakness, in our need, we know who you are. We know you're the God over all. We know that from you and through you and to you are all things, and to you belongs the glory. We know that. In our humanness, we understand that we are sinners, we are rebels. We have none of us have appreciated you or thanked you or lived for you as we should. None of us. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have reached out for it to take it as our own. And in doing so, we have experienced the depths and the horrors of spiritual death. And we deserve to be left there. And when we treat other humans that way, we end up stuck there, left there. But you are filled with mercy. You are eager to extend your goodness to us in our suffering, even though it's all a consequence of our sin and our rebellion and our pride and our ingratitude, and our blinders to you, and our exploitation of others, and our greed, and all the other horrible things that plague us, despite all of it, you have mercy on us. You speak life to us. You sent your son thousands of years ago to embody that life, to prove his ability, his sovereign ability to heal and to restore, to put his foot on the neck of death and to kill it. So that we can be assured that the death for us in Christ, death for us is just a threshold. It's just a doorway through which we enter that which lies behind the sign. The miracles, the blessings, the restored health, the restored families, the restored relationships. In this temporal world, all a pointer to what lies beyond to when we finally get to go be in your presence with you, worshiping you, seeing you for who you really are, filled with delight, filled with excitement, filled with joy, and united with one another, and united with family members, fully whole, enjoying you forever, and a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our future, and so God... Would you please help us, help us in our earthly lives, help us in the day-to-day just to accept, to accept the mundane things, to accept the difficult things, to accept the painful things, to accept the ailments, to accept even the losses, to grieve, to cry, but to do so not as those who have no hope, but, but to do so as those who are filled with hope because of who you are and who we know you to be and your faithfulness to us and your love for us. Thank you for the gift of Christ. Thank you for what he has done for us. Help us to walk with security 
and peace and joy because of it. Help us to learn to take ourselves a little less seriously, to embrace our mortality, and to learn of the joy of Jesus and the love of Jesus and the service of Jesus in that place. We thank you for what you will do. We thank you for everyone here, and I pray especially for those who who may be dealing with profound loss, maybe something that happened even recently. Please minister your comfort to them, your compassion and mercy to them, and we thank you knowing that you will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.